Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, That They May Be One. It's based upon the lectionary readings from May 24th, 2020. To ask what role prayer plays in our world right now, a world rife with pain, illness, loss, and death, is to raise the hardest questions I can think of about God. Honestly, they are questions I don't know how to answer. Does God routinely intervene in human affairs? Does his intervention, or lack of it, depend in any way on our asking? Can prayer change God, change circumstances, change us? Whatever the answers to these questions might be, we know one thing for sure. Jesus prayed. Jesus asked. Jesus made supplication to God. On this last Sunday of Easter, as we continue to face the horrors of COVID-19, we are invited to listen in as Jesus makes a high priestly prayer to his Father. The setting for his prayer is the upper room on Monday Thursday, and the mood in the room as Jesus talks to God is heavy and poignant. He has just said goodbye to his disciples, and every word, deed, and gesture he has offered them is weighted with grief. He has washed their feet, fed them bread and wine, promised them the Holy Spirit, and commanded them to love one another. He has spoken to them with both tenderness and urgency, as if time is running out. Because it is. Now, in the last moments before his arrest, he looks up to heaven and articulates his heart's deepest desires to God. I am asking, he says. I am asking. I've heard some people call Jesus' high priestly prayer the other Lord's Prayer, the one we don't memorize and recite on Sunday mornings. It's not pithy and poetic like the Our Father. It doesn't flow or cover its bases with anything like efficiency. It's long and rambling and rather hard to follow. And though the disciples are meant to overhear the words, Jesus' tone has an urgency and passion to it that is achingly private. Jesus is doing more than teaching in this moment. He's rending his heart. In his beautiful book entitled Tokens of Trust, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, describes the strangeness and wonder of a Jesus who prays. Yes, Jesus is a human being in whom God's action is at work without interruption or impediment. But wait a moment. The Jesus we meet in the Gospels is someone who prays who speaks of putting his will and his decisions at the service of his Father. He is someone who is in a relationship of dependence on the one he prays to as Father. In him there is divine purpose, power, and action, but there is also humility, responsiveness, and receptivity. I am inclined to add one more word to Archbishop Williams' list. Vulnerability. Jesus spends his final hours on earth in humble, vulnerable supplication to God. He ends his ministry by asking into uncertainty, hoping into doubt, trusting into danger. Asking is the last act of love he pours out to the disciples gathered around his table. It is the last tender memory he gives them, the last gesture of hope he extends. Contrary to what we might expect or prefer, 
He doesn't awe his followers with a grand finale of miracles or humble them with a show of divine authority and power. He looks up to heaven with a trembling heart and surrenders his cherished friends to God. I am asking, requesting, hoping, as if to say, God, I don't know what you will do with my request. I don't know how or when or if you will answer this prayer. I can't force your hand. But I'm staking my life and the lives of my loved ones on your goodness, because there is literally nothing more I can do on my own. I have come to the end of what this aching love of mine can hold and guard and save. I am asking. To return to where I started, there are so many tough questions to ask about prayer right now, and it is okay for us to ask them. But even in the midst of our questioning, it's important to remember that Jesus spent his last hours modeling heartfelt conversation with God. Perhaps the takeaway for us is that when all else falls away, prayer remains. Even when circumstances feel dire, prayer offers us a sturdy bridge between our hearts and God's, between our questions and God's promises, between our longings and God's grace. Prayer paves a way forward into renewed hope, strength, meaning, and possibility. But that's just the fact of prayer. What about its content? What does Jesus ask for in his high priestly prayer? Well, many things, but one request stands out to me right now, not least because it has not yet been answered. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. That they may be one. Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus commands his disciples to love one another so that everyone will know that they are followers of Christ. On the night before his death, Jesus declares the loving unity of his disciples the litmus test of Christian witness. Our ability to love one another across differences, our willingness to preserve and cherish our God-ordained oneness, is precisely how the world will know who we are and whose we are. Our love for each other is how the world will see, taste, touch, hear, and find Jesus. It's through our unity that we will embody Jesus, make Jesus relatable, possible, plausible to a dying world. I can't speak for you, but this makes me tremble right now because the signs of our disunity are everywhere. What Jesus seems to be saying is that if we fail to reconcile and unify, if we normalize divisiveness, separation, bitterness, and discord, The world won't know what it needs to know about God. And in the terrible absence of that knowing, it will believe falsehoods that break God's heart. It will believe that the whole Jesus thing is a sham. It will assume that there really is no transformative power in the death and resurrection of Christ. It will decide that God is a mean, angry, vindictive parent determined only to shame and punish his children. It will believe that the universe is a cold, meaningless place ungoverned by love. It will write off the church as a flawed and hypocritical institution, not Christ's living, breathing, healing body on earth. Such is the power we wield in our decisions to love or not love, to be one or to be divided. Such are the stakes involved in how we choose to respond to Jesus' dying wish, hope, prayer, and commandment. Such is the responsibility we shoulder, whether we want to or not. What scares me most about Jesus' prayer for our unity is that I am numb to the aching desire at its heart. I'm apathetic. I'm complacent. I'm cynical. 
I take Christian disunity so completely for granted I barely notice it anymore. What breaks God's heart no longer breaks mine. I'm not scandalized, as I should be, by the fact that we Christians have more denominations, communions, and splinter groups than I can count. I barely bat an eye when another local church splits into two. I don't grieve over the fact that I can church shop, as if churches fall into the same consumerist categories as clothes, shoes, houses, or hair products. And yet Jesus spent his last night on earth pleading for the unity of his followers, praying that the church would be one as he and the Father are one, not uniform, but unified, committed to a sacred tie that binds, determined to love, reconcile, bless, and unify across all barriers. Two thousand years after Jesus prayed for unity, maybe we can begin by praying for it too. Maybe we can realign our desires with Jesus's and ask God for an end to complacency, cynicism, hopelessness, and defeat. That they may be one remains God's cherished desire. May it become ours as well. For books this week, Dan reviews Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth by Sarah Smarsh. Part of the American dream that we're sold is the promise that through hard work, determination, character, and courage, anyone can get ahead in life. There is also a converse corollary to this, that it's your own fault if you remain mired in poverty, that you must be lazy, weak-willed, and probably immoral. And so we valorize the rich as morally worthy, and we shame the poor as personally irresponsible. Cyrus Marsh's Heartland, which is equal parts personal memoir and cultural critique, shows how and why this sort of thinking is so badly wrong. The book was an instant bestseller and has won two dozen awards, including a National Book Award finalist. In 2018, Smarsh was a Shorenstein Fellow at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. On her father's side, Smarsh grew up a fifth-generation Kansas wheat farmer. On her mother's side, she unpacks the chaotic and violent histories of multi-generational poverty in her great-grandmother Dorothy, her grandmother Betty, her mother Jeannie, and, in a clever narrative device, her own unborn child, August. What would life be like for her? Betty, for example, divorced six times and moved more than 60 times. She was also the compassionate and quintessential survivor. Her mother Jeannie attended five schools in five towns one year. Both Betty and Jeannie were teenage mothers. Before she finished high school, Smarsh herself had moved 21 times in two Kansas counties, and so she grew up in a constant state of high alert, knowing how fragile life was, how powerless you can feel in the system, how an invisible hand seems to make decisions for you. Quote, I knew so deeply that I wasn't even conscious of it, that my family was on the outside of something considered normal. Smarsh gives a poignant and very powerful voice to the poor white trash, her language, that remains culturally invisible to most of us. And to be made invisible as a class is an invalidation. With invalidation comes shame. These are people like her family who buy their business suit at Kmart, who suffer poor health from lack of adequate health care and bad habits, for whom a speeding ticket or a broken car are a potential disaster. They live in what we dismissively refer to as flyover country. Their lives were a disturbing reminder that in America, if you are born poor, you are very likely to remain poor 
no matter how hard you work, and no matter that you live in the richest country on earth. For films this week, Dan reviews Adios Amor, The Search for Maria Moreno. Maria Moreno was so many things. An American citizen born in Texas, a farm worker in California's Central Valley who picked the food for our tables, but who could barely feed her own family. Mother of 12 children, and a passionate and fearless activist organizer for farm worker rights. Maria Moreno was also lost to history until the director-producer Lori Coyle discovered a cache of hundreds of photographs of Moreno when she was making a film about Cesar Chavez. Why hadn't she ever heard of her, she wondered. In this one-hour documentary, Coyle recovers Moreno's forgotten story. She hired a private investigator. She made a public service announcement on Latin radio. She interviewed historians of the labor movement. But it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. The movie is largely driven by the black-and-white photographs and brief interviews with the photographers George Ballas and Ernest Lowe, who were fascinated by her unusual combination of personal story and political activism. Eventually, Moreno became the first woman farm worker hired to be a union representative. After gaining some notoriety, though, she disappeared. Where did she go, and why? When her union position was terminated, she moved to the Arizona desert and became a Pentecostal pastor and minister to the poor. This movie originally aired on PBS September 27, 2019. For a similar PBS documentary about another forgotten woman who worked hard behind the scenes for social justice, see Dolores. And finally, for poems on the seventh Sunday of Easter, The Big Heart by Anne Sexton. Too many things are occurring for even a big heart to hold. From an essay by William Butler Yeats. Big heart, wide as a watermelon, but wise as birth. There is so much abundance in the people I have. Max, Lois, Joe, Louise, Joan, Marie, Don, Arlene, Father Dunn and all in their short lives give to me repeatedly, in the way the sea places its many fingers on the shore again and again. And they know me, they help me unravel, they listen with ears made of conch shells, they speak back with the wine of the best region. They are my staff, they comfort me. They hear how the artery of my soul has been severed, and soul is spurting out upon them, bleeding on them, messing up their clothes, dirtying their shoes, and God is filling me. Though there are times of doubt as hollow as the Grand Canyon, still God is filling me. He is giving me the thoughts of dogs, the spider in its intricate web, the sun in all its amazement, and the slain ram that is the glory, the mystery of great cost, and my heart, which is very big, I promise it is very large, a monster of sorts, takes it all in. All in comes the fury of love. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for May 24th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.